see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box. Recorded in beautiful Virgin Valley, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, Mesquite, Nevada, and find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com. Hosting today's episode is Rochelle Knight and Steve Dudrow. Let's go have some fun. Thank you, Dottie, and to everyone else, welcome to another episode of The Art Box. Today, I'm going to be a little bit hindered in that my co-host, Rochelle, is on assignment in Tahiti painting the amazing and rare Vanilla Orchid. You say, Steve, what are you going to do without Rochelle's Art questions, insightful, amazing, fun. I don't know, but I think I'm going to rely on my guest to just tell us those without Steve prompting. In any case, uh, today we are in Las Vegas. Yes, 100 and some degrees. I, what am I doing today is what we normally ask. And today on the way to Las Vegas, I got off a little bit early and stopped by Nellis Air Force Base and thought, oh, I'll see what's flying today. Well, there was one airplane, an F-22 Raptor, and it took off. It was headed to Tinker Air Force Base, and I got it. I snapped this picture coming out. It was pretty good. I went to Einstein's Bagels because we have no Einstein's Bagels in Mesquite. No, no Einstein's bagels. Anyway, I stopped by Einstein's, had me a couple bagels, yes, two, then rode over to Rayette's house. Rayette is the executive director for Nevadans for Cultural Preservation. She does an amazing job, and we're going to talk with her today. And Rayette, thank you for allowing us to use your home. Off we go. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Currently, I'm the executive director of a nonprofit called Nevadans for Cultural Preservation. It's a 501c3 um, that does education to help the general public know how to help us preserve important places of our past. I'm also a contractor for the State Historic Preservation Office. I'm an archaeologist for them, and I work on various projects. I'm an artist. I enjoy, in my free time, doing different types of artworks. You're an artist? I am. Well, it depends on what you define as an artist. I I know that because I just love all your art that you put up on Facebook. Thank you. It's a nice break from my other work to be able to use my creativity and and spark some joy. Yeah, and it does spark joy in my eyes. (laughs) And and others by the, the... 
by the comments that I see. Yeah, yeah. So I don't take it too seriously because, again, it's it's for my pleasure and, and to, again, bring joy. So it's not my bread and butter, but it does take up a, a good amount of my time. I know that you were born in Alaska. I'm right about that, right? Yes. I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. Um, my mom was born in Alaska, so that would make me second-generation Alaskan. I spent most of my youth there in a small town called Wasilla. Sarah Palin put that on the map. I was going to say... <laughs> I've been to Wasilla before. Yeah. Actually, I saw in Wasilla there was a road that looked like it served as also a runway for an airplane when I was in Wasilla. Nice. So I grew up behind the small plane airport. Okay. So we had a two-story condo, and so I grew up with those small planes all times because in the summer it's light most of the time so I can sleep through almost anything the start of the Iditarod race was actually on that airstrip in the winter I could sit in my house and watch the Iditarod start without freezing my butt off oh cool yeah cool so what else happened in Alaska oh boy a lot of time spent outdoors and unsupervised my parents kind of, you know, come home when you come home. So I was always out in the woods um, playing and getting into trouble and hanging out with moose and watching for bears. And we spent our summers deep sea fishing. So I spent a lot of time on the beaches, beach combing, riding four wheelers, just anything I could do in the outdoors. I loved it. That sounds great. Do do you think that um, enhanced your love for art? I think so. My mom was always very crafty, so we always had different projects like making ornaments for the tree or she was quilting and doing those kinds of things. So it was always really encouraged. And then you can't help but be inspired by the beautiful landscapes and natures. There's a little Bob Ross inside of me too that I enjoy busting out some sceneries every now and then. Going to take a break here for a second. I've heard this name several times mentioned. I know Rochelle knows who he is, but me, you? Bob Ross was an American painter, art instructor, and television host. He was a creator and host of The Joy of Painting, an instructional television program that aired from 1983 to 1994 on PBS in the United States, CBC in Canada, and similar channels in Latin America. Give Bob Ross a Google. Thank you just pulling from that memory bank of what everything looked like growing up. Why did you leave Alaska? Between moving a few different times to just get out of Alaska, because when you grow up there, you're so isolated. So I would move maybe to Oregon or Kansas, just kind of move around, live in a van down by the river. Literally, (laughs) I I drove from Alaska through the Alcan into Oregon, lived in our Volkswagen van, and went on all kinds of adventures. But honestly, the big thing that pulled me was university in Alaska. We didn't have very many professors in college that had to do with anthropology or archaeology. And I was able to become a Western undergraduate exchange student and come to UNLV. So I moved here because of school. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. But once I got here, it's a lot like Alaska, except the opposite extreme. So town is spread out. There's plenty of things to go out and do if you just drive a half hour outside of town 
or you drive even further and then you know you change the scenery so it wasn't that big of a, a culture shock when it came to my activities but it was a big culture shock and as far as diversity access to i don't know restaurants and clubs and things like that so that was the big the big difference yeah. but keeping me here i think is the fact that there's so much to do outdoors and it's such a beautiful place that you can enjoy the desert as much as you enjoy trees and mountains and you haven't once once mentioned a casino no so you, you don't enjoy casinos i don't i don't gamble at all it's even hard for me to put like five bucks in a nickel machine just for funds luckily that's not a, a hobby of mine because i don't have the budget for it yeah i'm with you on that my money was too hard earned yeah although now i'm retired though is it still earned does it count i, I still don't I still, actually, I got to put it in the gas now. <laughs> right? I got to put that money in the gas tank. Yeah, I, I do like what the casinos afford as far as entertainment and restaurants. And, and I like walking around them. I think it was pretty cool when I first got here and seeing that the ceilings were painted, like the sky and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, we would do that when we first moved here, too. So mm-hmm. um, what is it? Uh, which is the one? Um, the pa- pairs mm-hmm. with the ceilings all painted like this guy. That's that's what you're talking about, right? Yes. And then New York, New York has like this this old streets that try and make it feel like you're in New York City, yeah. and you can buy a slice of pizza or or watch dueling pianos. So that was just kind of neat to to be able to experience different places, but still be in Las Vegas. Let's go back to your high school years. I think that your parents did to you what Gwen and I did to our youngest. They moved you in the middle of high school. Yes, they did. And that, I don't recommend it if you can avoid moving your children when they're in like their junior year um, because it was such a change. My dad needed to work in Sacramento, California, and he moved me down there with him and my mom and I started a new high school and Alaska high school it's small we all know each other Uh, there's not that many class offerings it was kind of weird growing up there we had our own smoking section like you would go outside and kids could have a smoke break so completely different environment was there smoking even allowed in Sacramento no no it was totally different I didn't smoke but it's just the vibe, you know, if, if the kids are allowed a smoking section that tells you <laughs> that it's kind of relaxed. And when I came to Sacramento, I was in like a blue ribbon school and I had been in accelerated classes in Alaska, but that was like regular classes in California. So academically, it was hard. And then socially, it was difficult. And it's actually when I first realized that I had artistic talent and I had an art teacher that understood what I was going through and allowed me to stay in the classroom for other periods so that I could work on my art and it was very therapeutic and he saw that happening. They even created special art classes for me so I could continue to take them because I had taken all of the offerings and then I wouldn't get credit. And so Wow, that's great. Yeah, so that was Amazing. I was able to get pieces into art shows as well and get feedback from the community. There was a ceramics class that was offered, and I could take that in the summer. So I spent my summers uh, in clay, creating different things. And then 
you know, my senior year, we end up moving back to Alaska, but I wanted to stay in California and go to the Art Institute in San Francisco. My parents kind of put a squash on that, no support there, but also they were moving, so I didn't have anybody to live with and any means, so I ended up going back to Alaska. Took, again, more art classes and haven't stopped doing art since. That's cool. Yeah, that teacher was very important in my life. What was the teacher's name? It was Mr. Ewin, E-W-I-N, and he was quite the character. He owned like six different red motorcycles and would never show us his art, but I knew he was probably pretty well known. We did everything from graphic arts to painting, drawing, and you know, it was just amazing. I took drafting, thinking that it's another class I can take that helps me with my, my pencil work. Yeah, I was always in all that. Yeah, me too. That's why I could always print so well. Yeah. And then drafting kind of went away. It did. Yeah, hand, you know, everything's on AutoCAD and stuff now, so it's like a digital type of art form. So you moved back to Alaska for your senior year. You were 17? Yeah, I was 17, and I wasn't living with my family anymore because they moved to a different city in Alaska, so I wanted to go back to the Wasilla High School, and that's when I was on my own. I moved in with my older sister. I worked at different bakeries and and made made ends meet however I could, and and stuck around for a while, but then just had to get out of Alaska again. You know, once you've left, you kind of get the bug for going where there's more people and more opportunities. And that's how I ended up in a van down by the river, waiting to see if I could afford an apartment in, in Portland, Oregon. Left and haven't lived there since. I've been back and forth to visit, but not living there. So where did you go to college and when did you go to college? Did you go to college out of the van or? Oh, actually. So scratch that. My life is, um, I'm not good with time timelines. Um, oh, just wait till you get older like me. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but in a way I feel like it keeps me mentally young because I'm really bad at keeping track of time. So I never really lived there as far as living with my parents. I did go to Portland and then I went to Kansas and I went back to Alaska because money was getting really tight and ended up going to Juneau, Alaska, which is much different than Wasilla, Alaska. You couldn't take the van there either. No, I did have a pickup though. So I guess you you could by by ferry or something. Yeah, we took the ferry. Oh, did you? Yeah, that's what I did is I took the ferry. Me and my cats, we slept in the truck and took the ferry and ended up in Juneau where I went to school just for a general liberal arts degree. Fell in love with archaeology and anthropology and went back to Anchorage for a year to do some more schooling and then transferred through the Western undergraduate. But apartment here, I lived with my sister for a while there, but I wasn't really rooted down in Alaska anymore as soon as I had had that trip to California. It was kind of like, okay, there's more out there than what's available in Alaska. I want to go see it. I want to get out and do things. Rayette and I, so we're going from, we haven't finished her college yet, but now we're going to go. Her and I were working on a graffiti project in Lincoln County, 
we were working away and we we're getting ready to finish for the day and here comes and Rand, i don't think you or yanni even noticed it but here comes a little car a little tiny car with a flat tire and it came down the road i think that's 93 isn't it or 93 or 95. Mm, i think it's three oh no that's 318. 318 yeah. yeah 318. here it comes and it's got a big truck behind it and the truck passes and it goes I didn't think anything more of it, but that somebody was going to ruin their, their wheel on their little tiny car. We get finished, maybe 15, 20 minutes later, we pack up, we go. I'm riding with Yanni and Rayette's either, you're behind us. Yeah, I'm behind and in well, my we truck. Come up, we come up to this little tiny car, because maybe it was the size of a bottle of ink or something. <laughs> it was really tiny. And there's a girl in there, and I rolled down Yanni's window and said, can we help you? She kind of acted scared. So she pulled over and Yanni pulled over and Yanni and I get out and Rance a little bit behind us. And it was a good thing you showed up because I think she was a little worried that, oh, here's two guys, I'm a young girl, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. So Rance showed up and you know immediately she became calm. She couldn't drive any further because she's like, oh, I'm going to go to the nearest gas station. Well, that's 30 miles. Yeah. You're not gone. Already the side of her car was coming apart. We decide that she's going to get in Yanni's truck with her two dogs. And I think they were... Large dogs. Yeah, they were, yeah. They were big dogs. So they get in there. And then she had, I think, three cats. Yeah, I think it was three cats and cat carriers. And cat carriers. And this little tiny car. And we got from her. She was moving from Spokane to San Diego to be with her boyfriend, with her two dogs, with her three cats. We get in Rayette's Tacoma, which the tag is Yodi. Yes, it's Yodi after my cat, and Yodi because it's a Toyota. Let's see, there we go, it's all all about the cats. (laughs) We put the three cat carriers in, I hop in with Rayette, we head down the road. Well, the cats, they're a little scared, so they loose their bowels. All of them, I swear. It was so strong. It was like an ammonia bottle had leaked all over the car and cat feces. And I have a really strong nose, like a bear. Um, That's one of my superhuman skills is I have a super nose. So, yeah, it was uh, not pleasant. You're like, put down the windows, (laughs) quick. I'm like, what, what, what? (laughs) Not being a cat person, I have not a clue about what's going on. Not that I have a clue about anything that's her going on. Put down the windows. But in any case, we helped her. Yanni stayed with her. And I guess she got to San Diego. I don't know that we ever heard. No, I'm assuming she did. There was a little mechanic uh, type shop in the next town. And we had to hunt that person down. And and then in town down the road, even further, there was, you know, maybe a tire that would work. And so they pieced her together and, and she hit the road. But yeah, that was quite the experience. Do you remember that her mom, I think she had her mom on the cell phone and her mom asked her, could she get a better price or something? Yeah, they were trying to haggle for the price of the tire in the middle of nowhere. So we were just like, you should be lucky there is a tire at all because there's no no way you're going to get AAA or anybody else out here. And she had that AAA card. Mm-hmm. If there's anything to learn here when you travel, have a triple A card. Yeah, and let your cats out to go to the bathroom every now and then. <laughs> when I've done a lot of my traveling, I've had cats with me. And what I do is I let them free roam in the car, and I have a cat box in the car. So I've been driving down the Alaska-Canada highway 
with, um, I had a Japanese bobtail, so it looks like a little Manx cat. He's going to the restroom as I'm driving on this bumpy road and he's hanging on, taking care of business. And then I would put plastic, like a plastic bag over my lap and I'd scoop it and throw it out the window. So that's the only <laughs> while time while I was driving. I was like, check that out. Again, I have a super nose and I figured that's not really littering. It will decompose in Canada. Well, you can't waste time when you're trying to get somewhere, right? No, that's a multi-day trip. So <laughs> I'm not going to pull over every time the cat has to go. <laughs> But I gave him an opportunity so he didn't have to go in his carrier. While we're in the cats, I know that your cat, whose name is? Ted. Tedward. Tedinsky. Teddy Spaghetti. Yes, Ted. He, he makes quite a few appearances on Facebook. Yes. I, I think this morning he made three or four appearances. He did, yeah. yeah. He's um, a rescue. All the cats I've ever owned are from the shelter. And he's just got a super huge personality and is mixed I think he's part dog. He fetches and, and nice. does all that kind of stuff. Really? Yeah, yeah. Very affectionate, but also really, really frisky. And yeah, he's very dog-like. I can call his name. He'll come to me. Yeah, I get home. He runs up to me, that kind of thing. Oh, that is so, yeah, that's so uncat-like. I know. But then at the same time, I don't have to let him out. I don't have to take him for walks. I don't have to do all that maintenance you have to do with a dog. So it's a better fit for my lifestyle for sure. <laughs> I met Rayette maybe back in 2016 or 2017. Her and Brooke, your stepdaughter, mm -hmm. you were helping teach class for site stewards, for archaeological site stewards. Okay. And I remember you up there, and I was like, "Oh, she's so mean." So <laughs> there's going to be a there's going to be a test, and I'm going to fail. No, you were so good, and Brooke was so excited getting things set up outside because we did a little field work. You want to talk about your time at Nevada Site Steward Program? Yeah. And then how you grew that into Nevadans for Cultural Preservation. And since I'm asking, maybe talk a little bit about the differences between the two nonprofits and the State Historic Preservation Office. For sure. When I graduated with my master's degree from UNLV in anthropology, I was working with youth and their sensory cognitive functioning and, and helping them read and, and that kind of thing. Well, the Nevada Site Stewardship Program coordinator needed somebody to come in that was good at working with people, but also understood cultural sites and the etiquette of visiting them, off-roading, those types of things. So I was able to meet up and get a job under a grant for the Nevada Site Stewardship Program. And that program is underneath the State Historic Preservation Office. So every state has that preservation office. And under that office, there's different requirements that they have. The Nevada Site Stewardship Program isn't one of those requirements. It's something that they adopted from volunteers that were doing this work previously. So in 2005, they started their official program. And then in 2013, when I came on board, they absorbed a program that existed in Southern Nevada. We were onboarding a program that was equal size to the one that existed. So right. I came in so that I could call people and, and talk to them and get everybody on board and, and make some changes. That evolved into me staying there for additional grant projects. So I would write 
grant projects to make sure that we continue to do outreach and education. State Historic Preservation Office only receives so many funding dollars, and those dollars go into training volunteers to monitor at-risk archaeological sites, usually for federal land managers, because they need eyes and ears on the ground and boots and people out there because they don't have time. And so we are, at the stewardship program, are like the middleman connecting those volunteers with land managers. We manage archeological sites, we match people up. It's like dating, you know, you wanna match the person with the right site. And those individuals are, are really amazing. And, and we would do different picnics and, and awards, those types of things. So I was doing that work and I realized that with the budget, we weren't gonna be able to do the outreach and education as soon as my grant was over. That spurred the development of Nevadans for cultural preservation. We saw it coming, the money's running out, there's no time or energy to be able to put into that, but it was really needed because working in that job, all the volunteers would submit monitoring reports and I could see the different types of damage that was happening at these cultural sites. And a lot of it was just from people not having a good education on what's there and how to preserve it. So it would be kids scratching tic-tac-toe games next to petroglyphs. You know, you know there's a parent there, they've gone out and they, they're not seeing that that's a problem. Other things include putting fires too close to rock shelters. I wouldn't have thought of that had I not had my education. I'd be like, sweet, there's a cool rock shelter, let's camp in yes, there. Yes, yes. Knowing that that was a lot of what the impacts were, I knew there was a need to educate the general public. So we created that nonprofit from that need, right? We saw it there and got a lot of momentum starting it up with the support from existing site stewards who thought that that was important as well. So that's how that got started. Currently, the Nevadans for Cultural Preservation, the nonprofit that I'm executive director of, we are taking on different projects where, for example, removing some graffiti, but also providing a website and providing carcinite markers that explain stuff. We are going out and talking to the off-road community because they're the ones who can access these remote places. And a lot of times that's their whole destination. So they're our audience. So we really wanna focus on land users and not other archeologists. And we don't wanna teach archeology, span we wanna teach preservation because archeology span is a discipline that informs other archeologists and a little bit to the public, but we don't want people out there digging, looking for new finds or trying to find the pyramids of Nevada. We wanna be like, hey, you're out, you're hiking, you're enjoying yourself, you're hunting, you're doing your daily activities. Help us preserve these places, talk about how cool they are and report when there's damages. So we kind of partner in a way with the stewardship program. You can think we run the citizen steward part where we're educating people to, to do that. And then they run the formal official part where people sign volunteer agreements and, and they are assigned specific sites and that kind of thing. We run kind of parallel and we being a 501c3 can provide that state run program with some additional opportunities. We need a donation to come in to buy some equipment for the stewardship program. The nonprofit's more than happy to do that and facilitate that. Yeah, and, and I can say that you guys have done amazing work. Thank you. So some of the pamphlets, well, one's a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so under diff a lot of my grant projects that I worked on 
we're in Lincoln County, Nevada. So that includes towns like Alamo, uh, Rachel, Heiko, Caliente, Pioch, Panaca, those places. And so I've spent five years in those communities going to rodeos, going to 4th of July festivals, hosting booths and events, reaching out to the community, but also providing publications for them that are for the community to read, not for archaeologists to read. I mean, as an archaeologist, I would read it and learn information, but I put together like a magazine. That way there's lots of photos and you can read article by article or you can read it beginning to end and it's it's timed that way. Um, lots of graphics, uh, visually ple- pleasing, because I really want to change the way that we present information to the public. They don't want to see a formal paper. This is a contextual document that, you know, that walks you through. No, hey, look at this cool magazine. Look at these pictures. Oh, I'll read the captions. And then, oh, maybe I'll read some more and, and kind of like draw them into wanting to read more of it and connect their experiences when they're in these places to history. I want them to see that connection, but not force it down their throat. Yeah, and you do that perfectly. Thank you. Because some of the history in there, well, not some of the history, but the history in every little section is great. And I don't know whether I've told you or not, but when I was doing the work um, up in Utah on the Transcontinental Railroad, Mm -hmm. we worked with the Chinese Rail Workers Descendants Association. Nice. And they really liked your magazine because you had some you had some Chinese um, stories in there. Mm-hmm. I did. I try to one of the goals in preservation moving forward, including with the State Historic Preservation Office, is to be more inclusive of the different groups in the past. I've talked to people and they're like, there were no Chinese here, and I'm like, wait a minute, no, there's tons of evidence of Chinese here. Let's let's uncover that and talk about that and and ask ourselves why we haven't thought of that before. Um, There's also um, an African-American, actually a former slave, so, you know, that was able to hold land in one of the towns that became a railroad town. So I try and point that out in a woman who ran multiple boarding houses, and she was Chinese, and was beloved by the community by the end. So I try and pull those stories together to talk about women, um, and other groups that don't make it in Western history. No, they don't, do mm-hmm. they? No, no. I grew up watching Western movies. <laughs> <laughs> so I know they don't show up in there, and if they do, they're just caricatures. But these were really important people in developing these communities and, and Nevada as a whole. Yeah, and, and I was surprised by my work up on the Transcontinental Railroad, the famous Golden Spike picture. There was one Chinese... Mm-hmm. in there and he snuck in the picture yeah they were mad that he was even in the picture right even though it was built on their backs yeah, it was built on their backs yeah they did an awful lot of work yeah so I've always tried to use my platform to educate folks not just about the cultural resources but just the diversity and the nature of things um, we Native Americans there's no feather headdresses in you know, Southern Nevada. I'm sorry, that's the Plains Indians and, you know, try and just bridge that gap. And speaking of that, well, actually, let's go back real quick. I also did for the Lincoln County area, a junior ranger book, right? You got to get the kids young. Uh, I'm so jealous. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. First, my grant proposal was just to do a coloring book. 
right? It's a black and white coloring book, set it, put it out there. And Katie, our artist on staff, is good at illustrating, so she was going to do that. And then they were like, no, I don't care what else you do with this grant money. We need a junior ranger book about archaeology. And there isn't one in the whole United States that's specific to archaeology through the BLM. And so we pulled that together again, trying to tell those stories in a way that kids could grasp the diversity, also to connect to place and to have fun. Really proud of, of that um, publication as well. Yeah, and you should be. Yeah. So educating the youth right off the bat, mm-hmm. you know, they love this stuff. Yeah, and then taking that, those illustrations and we put them into placemats and put them at the local diners, right? Because there's like one restaurant, if you're lucky, in each one of those towns. Yes, that's it. Yeah, and so we went into the restaurants and I, I bought the prepacked color crayons and I was like, will you hand these out? And they're like, heck yeah, we don't have placemats. And so we were able to circulate those as well, which was a lot of, of fun to to know that. And they sold, like got rid of them super fast. Yeah, because I don't remember seeing them. And mm-hmm. we, had, we had breakfast with Jake, mm-hmm. the archeologist in, in Caliente, uh, a couple of Saturdays ago. Yeah. At uh, uh, the stop. Sidetrack? Sidetrack. Sidetrack, yeah. yeah. There's the Naughty Pine and the Sidetrack are the big ones in Caliente. Yeah, so we yeah. had, oh, it was a yummy breakfast in the Sidetrack. <laughs> but I didn't get the color. I was so sad. Mm-hmm. No, they went through them, I think, within the first month or two. Yeah, they were gone. But it was just a way also to talk to them about us and, and citizen reporting and and that we're not scary people who are gonna come and arrest you because you have an arrowhead in your in your house. Um, that's a big part of it too, is, is being approachable and so that people can trust you to report things. Yeah, and you and the BLM have done a marvelous job, I believe, in Lincoln County. Yeah. Lincoln County's a whole different ballgame mm-hmm. yeah. than Clark County. Yes. Some parts of Clark County. Yes, it's a different world. Yeah. I, I was lucky that I was working with you up there one time and we got to go to a rodeo in Alamo. Yeah. And actually it was a state championship that they had in Alamo because they couldn't have it wherever it was supposed to be because of COVID. Right, because Alamo wasn't going to enforce the same restrictions on individuals. And, and, and I was there happy taking pictures. But mm-hmm. then there was a little dog, and I'll have to post a picture of the dog, his... Um, his parents, his owners um, had the sheep. Mm-hmm. So for the button busting, I oh, guess. Oh, yeah. So he was there and he was just a baby and he was tied up. Me and his name was Rex. <laughs> and me and Rex just sat there. I took pictures and Rex sat there and got wound and wound more into the in, into rope? the stands. Yeah, oh. <laughs> rope. Uh, but in any case, I bring that up because mm-hmm. I think you have a famous rodeo person in the family here, don't you? I do. Got some gold? Yes. Um, my, I have two stepdaughters. The youngest is Brooke and the oldest is Megan. Megan was doing volleyball and that kind of thing on all the adventures that I've had. So she hasn't been out there with us. But Brooke has been by my side at every event. And she helped us break through to the rodeo community because she went mutton busting. She had to qualify and she qualified. And then when she did the final rodeo, because she's done it twice... So when she did the performance in front of the whole crowd, she ended up in third place, I think it was, the first year. And she rode the longest time underneath the sheep, right? We told her, don't let go no matter what you do. And then we were like, let go. It's okay. Let go. 
but she couldn't hear us. And she was drug under that sheep and her, her britches were full of that arena dirt and her nose was bloody and she was crying, but happy, but crying. And she was just wonderful. And all the cowboys there were just, they were so excited that she hung on for the longest underneath and were really positive and supportive. And then the community accepted us a lot more. And another year she did it, um, cause that, that first time she got like a ribbon and a check. And then the next year she did it, she stayed on the top of the sheep for so long. They had to come peel her off of the sheep and she got second and a check as well. So yeah, she even made a little money off of it. She's my little buddy. And during COVID, especially archeologists, we really shouldn't be out in the field by ourselves because we're out in the middle of nowhere. Most of the time hiking through looking for stuff. And, um, so that was my, my, um, my work crew was Brooke and, and Kevin, and they would go with me and she's found sites for me. She's really good at finding lithics. She's really good at, at pointing all that stuff out. And then she's really good at talking to the public and educating. She's, she's even president of the national junior honor society for her school. Is and she, now? she is. And then she intentionally takes office aid for her elective so she can work in the office. So yeah, we got a little leader in the family, but. Yeah, we, we've certainly enjoyed watching Brooke grow up. Yeah, she's also my crafting buddy and my art buddy. I think she does more art than I do and she's old enough now, she uses all my, my professional supplies. So it's pretty cool to watch her grow and develop and, and see her art change over time. Mm, I think maybe we need to interview Brooke. I think so, yes. Actually, that would be a great idea. Mm-hmm. Let's plan on that. Yeah, for sure. I've been privileged to work with you on a project where we camouflaged graffiti. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I didn't know I had this special talent until I had the opportunity to try and pigment match a rock out at Red Rock. We were doing like a training. And so we had these loose powdery pigments and I had a paintbrush and I just sat there for hours. Like I had no concept of time and I was mixing paints on my hand and putting them up on the rock. Years later on a project with Steve, we had some more instances. So when people scratch graffiti onto a rock that has what we call a patina, like a darker color, and they remove that darkness from the top of the rock, you can't go in and like blast it out or do anything to get rid of it. You have to kind of fill it in and and camouflage it back to the natural look of the rock surface. And I just don't know why, but I really enjoy it. And I'm able to usually recreate the texture of the rock surface and make it to where you can't tell that any scratching had happened. And some archeologists can sit in a lab and work on ceramics all day. And all the ceramics to me look pretty close to the same. I can put them in order from like grayest to brownest, or I can, you know, reddest to whatever. And so I have the eye to catch color and, and that kind of thing. But some of the ones that look gray to me, they call brownware and some of the brown, you know, the gray ones they call brownware. So that's not my thing. I can't spend all day doing that, but I can spend all day painting rocks to look like rocks. Yeah, and I can remember the first time working with you and Yanni 
and I was given, this is at Mount Irish, mm-hmm. I was given a little scratch graffiti that said Ruth. Yes. R-U-T-H. I always remember because my beloved Aunt Ruth. Right. Okay. And you and Yanni were like, okay, take care of this. And you showed me a little bit. One of the things I learned, you said, showed me to just touch, 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 not brush. No. Which, to this day, I can't oil paint by brushing. I have to touch, touch. So, so now I have these huge, lumpy oil mm-hmm. paintings that are horrible, but whatever. I got rid of Ruth. Mm-hmm. And you and Yanni came over and made me feel really good. You got rid of Ruth. You did. I've been back and Ruth is still gone. And Ruth is still gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've done a lot of other work up there. Oz Bunks was one that we did some work on. Yeah, that was a little different because that was removing spray paint from the top of a rock surface. And it would get kind of slimy and, and move around on us. And having to clean that up was a different chore. Yeah, and you and Brooke did, I forget what which spot that was we went back out to where Osbunks was because this area is right along the highway and there's a pullout it gets hit with graffiti all the time and I got a call from Jake at the BLM hey we've got some scratch graffiti out here do you think you can come help take care of it and I had Brooke with me and she needed her service hours for her national national junior honor society so I was like all right we're gonna head up and and get rid of some graffiti and and we took care of it. It was scratch graffiti, so we used a cotton ball on the end of a dowel and and a little bit of toothbrushing and other things, and we were able to get rid of it. Yeah, Jake showed me that the other day where that was. Oh, yeah? So we went by because it was either him or Harry um, wanted to see where Osbunks was drawn across a pictograph. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So And I showed him the spot. It took me a little bit to find the spot, but we did a pretty good job, but you obviously couldn't take the black off the top of the pictograph no. but we got it around it yeah and i think the big thing is tricking the eye right if you go out there and you see a straight line you're going to look at it because in nature you don't get straight lines very often on rocks if you can break up that line and introduce some chaos to something that's organized then the average person won't notice that you've done anything to that area and it's not that we can ever remove graffiti completely um, we can mitigate graffiti or do graffiti restoration or that kind of thing but that area has changed forever and documenting the area is important because then you can look back and see oh hey yeah it was Osbunks was scratched over this but if we do a good enough job you can't tell when you first get there what's going on so that's kind of the art of it is being able to change that perception from something that is recognizable to something that your eye won't be drawn to there you go another graffiti removal opportunity presented itself to me um, out at a place called little red rock that place has been known to attract vandals and party goers and that kind of thing for decades it was remote at one point in time and now there's urban encroachment but when it was remote it was the place to burn mattresses and and light rocks on fire and every kind of party thing you can think of. I mean, I did plenty of that in Alaska. We just did it in hayfields, but you know, or out in the mountains. But here it, they were doing it at a cultural site. And I don't even know if they realized that it was an important cultural site. There's petroglyphs and they spray painted over the top of them. And it's been layers and layers of spray paint. The organization was ready to finally 
throw everything at it and clean it up and realize that it's not that easy. You know, there's different materials. One of them is called elephant snot, and it uses like a citrus-based astringent that kind of works on the rock. But every rock surface is different and the chemical makeup. And so sometimes when you put that on a rock, it bleaches out the rock. So now you made a bigger mess than what was there before. That's an ongoing project for Nevadans for Cultural Preservation to advise and consult and help with the management plan of getting that graffiti removed and educating the public that may make it out there because it's on private land so you're not supposed to be out there without permission but we all know people do that anyway let's address the people who are already breaking the law and let them know hey you can still help us preserve cultural sites you can still help us make a difference and even inviting them to help us remove graffiti in the future yeah, and I know our friend Lois got to go with you out there, and she's hooked, by the way. Oh, that's awesome, because it's really hard to find somebody who's willing to scrub rocks for hours upon hours and watching just one layer of graffiti come off every time you go back and scrub. And, of course, when we went out, and I think, I don't know how this always happens, but it was hot. You know, we've got winter, but no, we're not doing it in the winter time. We're doing it in the, you know, right before summer. So I think... It takes a special individual to give up their time and their their muscles to address those issues, but I'm excited that she enjoyed herself enough to maybe want to help do it again. Yeah, she went up with me to, to help Dennis Robinson. Mm-hmm. And who's the guy that works with Dennis Robinson? I always forget his name. Yeah, I forget his name too, but another another nice person. Right. And Dennis and him are both in their 80s. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there was some, you had to really climb up high. So Lois and I, we climbed up high because we were the youngsters. I think Lois is 63 and I'm 70, <laughs> right? So we're the youngsters climbing right. up high. We had a good time. Uh, of course, she was worried because he said, this stuff we're going to use, don't wear your eyeglasses because it will eat the glasses away. <laughs> so she was up there without her glasses. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. But then it'll eat your eyes away, too. <laughs> so I'm like, I think I'll wear my glasses. Yeah, well, that's because... <laughs> She bought up a backpack. I climbed up first. She bought a backpack with a lot of water in it Mm -hmm. because I was getting it on my arm and we're dousing my arm right away. Yeah, I think it's the same stuff and and it will eat through some people. Their skin can tolerate it and other people get welts and blisters. And yeah, it's pretty nasty stuff. But yeah, that's brave of you guys to be up there and using the... Well, we were the youngsters. (laughs) We (laughs) had to climb up there. That is a common issue. I think most of our volunteers that work for the stewardship program you know that go out and monitor things most of them are in retirement and then also even with the nonprofit, i'll get a few maybe university students but a lot of our long-term supporters and volunteers are usually in retirement age and i want to say that's nice for me i mean i'm in my 40s but seeing people in their 70s and 80s out there removing graffiti and hiking circles around me. It's very inspirational to know that like I could be doing this for more decades and and how cool it is. Yeah, because that's not the way I grew up. I mean, my, my father my father passed when he was 61 and he was fit and everything, but I could never imagine my father doing any of this stupid stuff that I do. It's not stupid <laughs> stuff. Keeps it's you young. It <laughs> keeps that's, you young. That's what I think. And his dad as well. You know, his dad died when he was 70, and mm-hmm. he was he was 70. He was old. Yeah. You know, there's granddad. Yeah. Don't hop up on his knee because you might break it. Yeah, I think that me growing up as well, um, most of my family um, got 
at least sickly to where they can't get around really well in their 70s. So um, I'm very positive that that there's a lot, lot to be lived still. Yes, there is. Vision Quest. So I know that I've been to two supposedly Vision Quest sites in White River Narrows. Do you want to talk a little bit about Vision Quest? Sure. Vision Quests mean a lot of different things to different people, and some people just don't get it at all, but that's okay. Um, The locations of the supposed Vision Quest areas were in places visually where you could see a vast distance. They were connected to petroglyph panels uh, that could be considered significant, and they were even kind of connected to each other. When you get to an archeological site, which just means that there's evidence of past human behavior in an area, you wanna think about how those sites are connected to the landscape and to other places. When considering a site to be a vision quest, you know, what else is around there? What evidence is there that maybe they were being inspired with their time? And I can't say for sure that any of those are specifically vision quests. It's just an assumption or an educated guess. But I believe that even modern day people have these moments, if you're an avid outdoors person, where you are sitting in nature looking out into the vastness and it inspires and maybe even changes the way you're perceiving reality at the time. If you're having a rough day, you're experiencing depression, anything like that. Today people are prescribing nature therapy. Uh, It's kind of like nature therapy on steroids. You go and you have a, a moment to reflect on yourself and the environment and what place you play in the universe. And I don't think that people in the past would have not done that. I don't want to say there's shaman or specific people that are the only ones who did that either because it's a shared human experience to be able to have your perception changed in nature. And one of the things that we're working on for Nevadans for Cultural Preservation is bringing that kind of thought process into modern day and connecting that with actually art. New Mexico is usually known for the landscape art movement. About 50 years ago when people were out doing these monumental pieces and in southern Nevada sometimes we're kind of ignored for that and our nonprofit received a grant from the Nevada Arts Council to do a couple different things. One of them is to record our landscape art that's received, um, well, historic time um, because it's 50 years old or older. And instead of just taking photographs of that and bring it into like an art gallery and, and being like, oh, look at these cool pieces, what we're doing is we are working with UNLV, um, not just their art department, but all their different departments to get five different artists to go out with us to these landscapes and create artworks of their own inspired by that landscape. It's not necessarily about the piece that was done, but the landscape that inspired the piece. And to me, that's kind of like a modern form of vision quests and bringing the outside in 
and sharing that with a new audience, the art community and people who are going to visit art. So there's two components. There's the research. There's getting that art um, set up for management. And then there's the bringing it to the people through the lens of artists and explaining how important that is, because that is still archaeology. That's our cultural resources. That's our history. Wow, that's great. So these couple um, vision quest areas Mm -hmm. that I happened to see with you were were rock circles. Yes. Okay, And like you said, they were up on top of um, a major petroglyph site or cultural site underneath there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you and Yanni, for one site, talked me into, you said, you should go up there, Steve, and do a time lapse overnight. And I said, well, that's a great idea. And then I forget whether you or Yanni said, um, but you should probably watch out for rattlesnakes. Yeah. <laughs> because I do everything that you and Yanni tell me to. I did that, and I got it all set up during the daylight and put the cameras on automatic. And I climbed back down. Oh, and I put um, a fire up there, or not a fire. I took a candle. Mm-hmm. Okay, I put a candle up there, but I took two candles up there because I didn't think it was going to be enough light. So you could see the front of the rocks. Yeah. Okay, well, I came down. It's dark. And I could see those lights. I was like, oh, it's going to just ruin the picture. So I had to climb up. And uh, it's dark now. And what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about rattlesnakes. Yes. Although I probably didn't have to worry about them at night. No, they're usually hidden away. Yeah, no, but you and Yanni didn't <laughs> tell this city boy about that. <laughs> Climbed up there, and it was no easy climb. Actually, coming down was worse to blow out one candle. And then I had to climb back up again because I had to change the battery, which I should have known that. But So that's my And I, I saw the Milky Way coming across. And actually, there were some good meteors, so I kind of wonder in their vision quest, they probably saw meteors. Oh, for sure. And in my magazine that I did, it's hard to find an image about people of the past, right? You don't want to caricature, again, people of the past. And I used one of your Milky Way photos to illustrate that because they looked at the same sky that we looked at. And so that's, that's kind of amazing to think of that when you're in that place. Yeah, they did. Which will take me back to, I think it was a Carl Sagan quote. He said that before we invented the indoors, our predecessors lived outdoors. So that was their bedroom sky. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. What is your art truth? And can you explain it, express it? Thinking about it, my art truth, it's what I'm drawn to and what I tend to create is imperfect art, right? I'm not going to create a picture-perfect replica of anything, and I like unpolished pieces. And this, I like it when the symmetry is a little bit off or it's a little quirky, you know, oh, that's missing or that kind of thing because it, it makes me think a little bit more and connect with the piece a little more. Like, none of us are perfect. The real world isn't perfect. And... It's not as intimidating as well. Um, I'm not going to hang a Michelangelo or, you know, something like that in my house. I would rather pick up somebody's artwork from a garage sale that they thought, oh, well, that wasn't good enough. And I see the beauty in it. And that's what I, what I like. When I lived in Portland, Oregon, they had the best garage sales. This woman had been taking art classes and she was getting rid of a bunch of canvases that had her artwork on them. 
and that was over 20 years ago. And one of her paintings was of a cat, of course, right? Looking out a window with the eyes reflecting in the window. And my oldest daughter has that now to put in her apartment. You know, this thing that this woman was going to throw away, it only cost me like $2 to buy, is been in our family now for a long time and is going to probably keep getting passed on. My art isn't perfect. My daughter's art isn't perfect. And the stuff I collect isn't perfect. And I think that's my art truth. Well, the, the cat picture is a great story. Mm-hmm. What do you do with mistakes? Mistakes provide opportunities to change what you thought you were going to do, right? So a lot of times I don't sketch out before I create something. So it may start with just a blank canvas and I pick a background, some kind of color that I want. And then I'll come up with an idea and I'll just start painting on the canvas. And so if something gets a little wonky, then now the head that was going to be maybe three inches is now going to be four inches or, you know, the colors are going to change and that kind of thing. So I, I like to work with the imperfections and mistakes and turn them into something else. You know, we ask that question, I think, to everybody, and everybody gives the same answers as you do. Opportunity, mm-hmm. except one. And she said, oh, I just throw it away and move on to the next. <laughs> Maybe it's watercolors or something that's harder. <laughs> yeah, I've done watercolors once. Oh, my gracious. It was terrible. How do you handle the critic in your head, Ray? I mean, do you have a critic that's saying, oh, I have no, a, Rayette, you can't do that. Yes, there's a constant critic. And I think that while social media is bad for a lot of people, I think it's really helped me see that even if I make something that I'm kind of off about, I'm like, ah, it's not quite right, it's not quite right. I remember, A, like I said before, like, everything's imperfect and then all I I'm creating art for myself and I'm creating art maybe to make somebody smile so I usually try and shut that critic up with it's still cute or you know that kind of thing it still looks like a forest and not every forest looks the same way but it is very difficult to feel as though you are an artist it's kind of imposter syndrome that's more what I get so if I have a table and I'm selling art at um, an event, you know, who does my art speak to or how many people have walked by and not paid any attention to it, um, that's kind of where that ends up. But I sometimes I got on a roll and I was making these two-inch by two-inch magnet cats, right? So it's a cat head on each magnet. I think I remember those. Yeah, and so they got better with time, but even the early ones were cute. Like, if you didn't see the better ones, you didn't know that the earlier ones weren't as good, or maybe you liked them more, because everybody's got a different opinion. And I took a dozen of those, and I took them off to a animal shelter, or a no-kill cat shelter, and I gave them to them, and I said, here is a donation, you know, maybe you can sell these and then just keep the cash, you know, for your organization. That makes me feel good, and I'm sure somebody enjoys it, and and so it's kind of like, well, not everybody's got the same eye, and not everybody's going to look at it 
And who knows, it may be passed down. It might. The family. Yeah, they're $2 magnet. They may hang on to it for generations. It probably will. <laughs> so my last, my last question for you, Rhea, is if you had the opportunity to go back, and this is as an archaeologist. Okay. Okay, we're dumping art for a minute. All right. As an archaeologist, if you had the opportunity to go back in time, wherever you want, whatever year, where would you go and why? If I could just take a peek, right? I wouldn't want to physically be there. I just want to like be up above everything like a fly on the wall and take a peek. I yeah, think. yeah, you don't have to worry about getting burned up or anything like that. It's, no. Yeah, you're, you're immune to any of that with this right. question. I think I'd like to go back um, to pre-colonization of North America. Um, I don't really know exactly where my ancestry comes from to be able to look back at that because everybody's indigenous from somewhere, right? We all trace ourselves back to That's true. to folks. Um, obviously, mine is Europe at some point, but you know, I think it would just be interesting to see that before disease and other things came through. I'd like to see it because I, I look at it every day. I go out and visit places every day where people have been and I would just be curious. And I think a lot of our assumptions about the past are wrong because it's just based on materials. I would like to get a glimpse yeah it's funny you say that because that's the exact same thing you know I, I go out and look at some of the petroglyphs or even like the susan site where we're doing the work on the on the on the calendar feature mm-hmm. I, i'd probably just like to go back and see what are they doing mm-hmm. how are they doing it yeah because i think also there's been a movement to involve indigenous lifeways into our ways of addressing climate change kind of getting back to that and i think it would there's a lot to be learned from you know the ancestors and how they dealt with climate change how they dealt with different challenges that we're going to face and even though we have technology and all these other things it i don't think it's necessarily going to help us that much not as long as we keep having more people yeah but (laughs) but that's my thought I, i won't go into that Ray at Martin, thank you very much for sitting down with us today. I'm, I'm sad that my co-host Rochelle couldn't be here today. Yeah. So she would have loved this. Yeah, we'll give her a hard time for not being here. Um, I definitely will. Well, she'll get to listen to you talk and she'll be like, oh my gosh, I could have asked this question or that question. <laughs> Say, well, well, we'll schedule another time. Yeah, Ray, thank you very much. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. If you would like to learn more about Nevadans for Cultural Preservation, please visit our website at nvfcp.org. There you can find our upcoming events, look at our past activities, and find out more about how you can help preserve Nevada's heritage. Rock and chat with Rayette today. Wow, she's quite amazing. Known her for five years and... There's just a lot I learned today. So what was really nice, and I guess Rochelle and I always ended up what's inspired you. What inspired me for this yesterday was uh, Rayette and I cleaned up all the podcast stuff, hopped in the car, so went up north to our friends Lois's house, and Lois packed us in the car, and we went up to Mount Charleston and had a nice hike in the high country. It was chilly, fun. Then we drove back to Lois's house, and her daughter, Sarah, is visiting from Boston, and she fixed us up some tacos. Uh, 
nice day, nice evening with friends. Can't beat that. Thank you for listening in today. We'll see you next time on The Art Box. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, The Art Box sponsors... Okay, okay, okay. You see what happens when you leave me with the art box all by myself. So I told a little fib, Rochelle is not actually in Tahiti photographing the vanilla orchid. She's really having a great time with her family on vacation this week. All right, Dottie, let's start the ending over again. I'm sorry. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, visit us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com.